1: Well, welcome to Kidney Talk, everyone. Um, I'm very excited today because it's not often I get a chance to talk to somebody who has this incredible historical knowledge of kidney disease. And I'm very lucky today because I'm speaking to Dr. Michael Fisher. He's a nephrologist from the 1970s. He's got vast experience on treating and caring for patients. And he's going to share a little bit about that. But also, he's going to share a little bit about his journey of overcoming an illness. And it led to him writing a book of really understanding what it's like to have an illness. And uh, I'm very excited to have you here, Dr. Fisher.
0: Thank you, Laurie. I'm, I'm really excited to be here, too.
1: So I, I always like to ask this question, what what made you decide to become an nephrologist?
0: When um, I was in medical school, and I didn't really have a clue to begin with, but I began to narrow it down to internal medicine because I don't think I had the temperament to be a surgeon, but mm-hmm. I love the uh, concept of internal medicine, where you really have to know how the whole body works, and you have to be able to communicate with your patients and their families, and and uh, take all of the data and put it together and become like uh, Sherlock Holmes, come up with a diagnosis and then shepherd your patients and the family through wh- wh- know, wh- whatever the problem was. So I read Harrison's textbook of medicine, and as I read it in my senior year, I just was glued to the parts about kidney disease. And mm-hmm. back in the 60s when I was in medical school, quite honestly, it was like the dark ages of kidney disease. They didn't really understand the nature of most kidney diseases. Immunology was just just a thought. It had not developed at all. So I was sitting in um, a pathology class, and Dr. Jones um, was giving a lecture, and all the lights went out, and it was a lecture on the glomerulus, which, is you, you well know, is the unit of function of the kidney. Mm-hmm. And he was doing some of the earliest research, um, and he put these electromicrographs up, Most of the class fell asleep when it got dark, and I was fascinated by the structure of of the glomerulus, so that really, really turned me on, and then I read a lot about kidney disease, and finally, when I had my final exam in medical school in medicine, I had an oral exam by a nephrologist, of all people, and because I was so focused on nephrology, so early on, I got an A in, in in the exam. And uh, from that point on, I was really turned on, even though it was, it was, there were many more questions than answers. And the last thing was during my internship, I had a nephrologist as an attending. And uh, he made it so exciting. He was really interested in uh, the early field of immunology, which was developing. And we would look at a urine analysis together. And it was like the poor man's renal biopsy. When you looked at the urine analysis with him, Uh, You could almost make a diagnosis because he was so astute. So those things turned me on, and uh, from there I pursued my fellowship at UCLA in nephrology.
1: Well, you know what's really amazing is... You know, healthcare is relatively new. We haven't been practicing medicine that long. And, you know, we often think that, oh, we've been doing kidney disease care forever. But it's only been about 50 years, a little over 50 years, which isn't a long time um, in in retrospect. (laughs) I always put that in context. You know, 100 years ago, you were definitely not going to survive if you had kidney disease. And, And actually, that's one person's lifetime. Um, so it's, uh, it's quite amazing to think about it in those terms. Well, I, I want to um, talk a little bit about after caring for patients for years, um, you were diagnosed with an illness, and I want to jump to that point because what did that teach you, and how did you draw upon all the years you cared for patients?
0: Well, that's a um, major turning point in my life. It was about five years ago, and I had been, I thought, relatively healthy, in retrospect, when I actually um, really looked back at my whole history, I recognized that there were many things that um, planted the seeds for my illness. But five years ago, I was going to have some surgery at UCLA on my tongue, and uh, they required a chest X-ray, and I almost, um, I almost, tr- I almost avoided it by being <laughs> stubborn, saying that I just had one a year ago. But I, I luckily it was a good patient and listened and um, went to, had my chest X ray and I felt everything was fine. I was supposed to go back to the office and I just walked into the radiologist's office, which was right there. And as I usually do when I review chest films, and it was a surrealistic experience because he began talking about the chest X ray that was up on the board and I looked at it and I gulped because I saw something that I didn't like. I saw a density in my left lung. And uh, he he talked about that chest X ray. Is if there was a different patient? It was me. Oh wow. Long story short, I had lung cancer. I had a, a lesion of my lung. I'm a non smoker. In uh, uh, there, there are reasons for it that I that I can that I, I think I figured out now how my immune system was affected by various things. But long story short, um, before I knew it, I was. I had the uh, tongue surgery at UCLA, and there was a great danger, of course, and my fear was that the tongue may have been cancer also, and uh, what was the link between that and the mass of my lung? Fortunately, the lesion of my tongue was, it was infection, but uh, 10 days later, they removed the left upper lobe, and from that point on, uh, during my convalescence, which was a long one because uh, there was some complications. You know, I had ample time to really reflect on um, on my patients, and now that I had walked in their shoes, um, um, I understood what it was really like to be a patient, not to be, you know, to have joined the ranks of the of those who were not. Yeah, you know, we used to we talk about uh, patients being we talk about being really healthy, but we're temporarily healthy, and I was once a member of the temporarily healthy group. And that all changed. And um, while I was recovering, um, I, I really thought about my patients and I thought about, uh, and that's where I really got the tremendous inspiration and their courage and their uh, spirit and their ability to, uh, you know, the power of the human spirit, their will to live. Um, demonstrated the very noblest qualities of human beings—the resilience, the determination, and hope to overcome complex illnesses. So, my transplant patients and my other kidney patients and my internal medicine patients became role models for me. And I knew now I had to—I had to walk the walk. I, I talked the talk with them, giving them the kind of support they needed to overcome. But now they served as my inspiration to get well. And as a result of that, um, they inspired me to write about my, about my experience. And I would say, um, be, you know, be, because of the, of, of their experience, of this experience, I had a new purpose in life and, um, and, uh, kind of helped me break out of my, my depression and, uh, get busy and get on with my life. And so I can say that, uh, as, close, as, as I could say that I wish there were other ways of doing. It, and I always felt that I was empathic, but having walked in their slippers and felt the sense of um, of potential doom and the uh, and the terror of having this diagnosis, um, I think it made me a better physician and made me a better, under, you know, better able to understand uh, what others really feel like when they're confronted with a life threatening illness.
1: You said something very interesting because I get this a lot when, you know, I explain what Renal Support Network does. And, you know, we provide education and hope and try to support each other. And it's, it's not important to people until you realize how important it is. And we have people who come across us and they're like, oh, that's nice. You do a prom. or you this nice? You do that. And then we have people like, oh, my God, that's the only thing my daughter looked forward to. And you understand the importance once you're impacted by a situation. And I think what's so wonderful about you sharing your story is that renal care professionals sometimes forget that it takes so much courage to show up three times a week for dialysis. When you know you're going to have needles put in your arm, you may not feel well during the treatment. You have a fluid and diet restriction. And just to put a smile on your face and get up and every day is, you know, you should like applaud because it it's life is also happening, which is can be difficult when you don't have any problems. So I think it's just amazing that you're bringing light to your uh, fellow healthcare professionals, in addition to recognizing your patients. So, with that, um, so what are some of the things you learned from your patients?
0: I learned that uh, number one, you never, never, never give up. I think that was Winston Churchill, and I think that uh, I do tell some stories about my patients, which show the stories which prove that. Um, that truth is always uh, stranger than fiction, things that are unbelievable, but only human beings who dig down deep and find the uh, power of their own human spirit, um, that they're able to then conquer things, uh, challenges which seem insurmountable, and not only uh, survive but thrive and continue to, um, to live wonderful lives. Uh, 10 20 30 years later since uh, their transplant and some of course have had more than one kidney transplant so their resilience their strength their um, I think the anchor the anchor of all this is hope and that's why um, why I, I love what your organization is doing because I think without hope uh there is nothing um you know hope gives purpose and uh, and hope is um is is absolutely uh, the most important uh The most important, uh, it's not a drug, but the most important intervention, it has to be there always. And then when hope is there, anything is possible. And I've seen that.
1: One of the things I think isn't spoken a lot about is anger. And I want to know if you could tap in a little bit to what you felt, because I, I often tell my peers that anger is a powerful motivator to get better. And it's because you want to change. And I know certain instances in my life when, you know, I went through the shock, denial, fear, anger, depression, grief, and then finally understanding acceptance. But anger is a powerful motivator to get better. Did you ever experience a time when you were really angry and that made a transition in your life?
0: I, I do remember. <laughs> I remember that and my medical history goes back to, to the early 1990s when I had very severe diverticulitis. Which was relatively life threatening, but I was too young to understand it then. And but I remember being um, treated like I felt myself like on the conveyor belt. I call it the medical conveyor belt, mm-hmm. and like a, like cattle. And uh, and it didn't matter that I was a physician. It wouldn't matter who I was. I was treated. Uh, it was not humane, and I didn't like it. You know, I was very angry about that. And then, of course, I was I was um, subjected to a medical procedure. And nobody was there really to supervise it and had, hadn't thought it out very well. And as a result, I had very, very severe pain. And nobody came to my aid, and there, was, there were no professionals, including physicians. And I was extremely, very angry. And I was angry, and I wrote to the administration that this shouldn't happen to anybody. And uh, so that kind of anger spurred me, you know, really uh, it motivated me to make sure that that this type of preventable problem would never uh, hurt my patients, but when I was sick with the lung cancer and was recovering from the surgery, I didn't have too much time to get angry. Um, I think that, I think, the I mean, I, was not, I went through those stages. There was certainly depression, the letdown. I felt my purpose in life was gone. I had been working, uh, not full time. I was getting older. I was 70. But I was still seeing uh, patients and taking call and very involved in teaching and various things. Came, my life came to a sudden stop. And then I, but I already reached the age of 70. So it's not, you know, I, I began to rationalize. So right. I, I was depressed. I was um, debilitated. But I think I honestly mean this, Laurie. I think my patients didn't allow me to get angry because when I thought about what they had gone through, Just the things you talked about, the dialysis procedure and process, which in my mind is a means to an end. It's a means to staying healthy and well until you get that kidney transplant. And in my mind, the kidney transplant is the holy grail. And we, all of us nephrologists, should be educating our patients about um, how we can get the kidney transplant as soon as possible. But my patients were so powerful that they helped me get through this and become proactive before I, I I... you know, I waddled in a type of uh, self-pity. And as a result, and with some good luck and very good doctors, I made a very good comeback. And I feel better. I feel almost grateful for having been ill because I feel that my life has taken a different course uh, than it would have if this didn't happen. But I feel like I have a better understanding of the of the whole picture of being a doctor, a patient. We're all the same. We're all human beings. And we can all suffer, and we have to recognize that. Um, that I think the best kind of doctors have to really empathize with their patients.
1: I think one of the interesting points you made is that when you had that situation happen to you, is it's almost like post-traumatic stress. You you recall it, you remember it, and I, I like to remind healthcare professionals that it's it is difficult and, you know, you basically took action and tried to change things and I try to educate my peers that, you know, look, if something's going on where you don't feel that care is being administered properly, you need to speak out in a way and write a letter. You you can't yell and scream in in the middle of the of the hospital or the clinic because that's not gonna get you anywhere. You need to sit down, write the letter, be thoughtful and give constructive criticism and ask for reply. And, you know, those types of actions make you feel better. And they do for me anyways. Because uh, and it's um it's it is, but it it, there's a lot of opportunity for error when you go to a treatment three times a week, you know? I mean you go to the clinic, I mean I always think, you know, you take a flight and, you know, I've taken ten flights in a year and, you know, three or four had problems, maybe even more nowadays. And the more flights you take the more opportunity you are to be disappointed or have a bad experience and you also have an opportunity to have a good experience. But as human beings, we don't always talk about our good experiences. We talk about our bad experiences. That's a way we cope. And I think people need to remember that when patients are going to dialysis three, four times a week, or they're dealing with home dialysis, they're more likely to share the stories that are, that are holding them back to process them. And the best thing you can do is say, yeah, I understand it's really difficult. You've been through some. Just listen. <laughs> And and let them process those emotions. But having said that, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what people can learn from your book, Surviving Kidney Disease, True Stories of Love, Courage, Hope, and Heroism for the Future.
0: Before I, I comment, Lori, I just want to comment on what you just said, because I think it's so critical that our patients uh, are given the uh, total freedom to express their feelings at all times. And that physicians and other professionals in the dialysis unit are not defensive, but actually welcome whatever the feelings are of the patient, mm-hmm. because um, it's such a profound experience. And lots of folks just uh, internalize it, or don't feel that um, they're they're intimidated. They feel they need patients need to know that their well being and their survival and their ability to get a kidney transplant and have a normal more normal life depends very much on being the squeaky wheel. Um, they are consumers. They're, they're actually getting a service. But there's always this, this thing in the relationship between the, the doctor and the patient where sometimes the patient is afraid to speak up. Patients must speak up and we have to support them and accept their feelings at all times.
1: Well, and you know, I just wanted to add on to that because sometimes I hear like, oh God, that patient's so angry. And I'm like, well, you would be angry, too, if your kidneys didn't work. I mean, you know, if, if patients aren't angry at some point, there's something wrong. Like you said, they're not feeling their emotions. When you don't feel all your emotions, you hold them in. And that leads to depression and other aspects if you don't fully feel and express what at the time. And we spend more time on. With dialysis care professionals than our own family, and so at a lot of times in our lives, so you're going to see the best and the worst of us, and you need to support both sides.
0: I totally agree, uh, and you want to uh, you want to eliminate or reduce the stress in the life of the patient as much as possible, because the stress is playing a role in inflammation and high blood pressure, and, and it's uh, you know it's affecting the body in ways that are not good. And, uh, and also, there's a sen- you want a sense of well-being and a sense of hope. So, this this is the type of thing that dialysis units of the 21st century now have to focus on. The technology is, is pretty good, but now we have to have a human touch. High-tech and high-touch are critical for, and hope for the patient's uh, good care. But you asked me the question about what I would like my book to uh, do, uh, and I thought about that because there are a lot of parts to it, but the first part when I was lying there ill was uh, I got this notion that I wanted to honor my patients and their families. Um, the, um, you know, because they summon the noblest of human qualities that I mentioned earlier. And, um, I think the title of the book says it all true stories of love, courage, hope, and heroism. That's the first part of the title. So it seems to me that love is really the basis uh, for life. This is what makes life meaningful and that when there's love, uh, people become courageous. When they're loved, when they have a why, they can find almost any how. And when there's hope, people, heroic people come forward like a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a friend to donate a kidney. So I want the, the population at large to understand, I'm going to be a major advocate for transplantation and even Um, uh, to uh, preempt uh, dialysis if necessary in certain kids and certain patients we can transplant before dialysis, uh, to educate folks that it is safe and that it is uh, a wonderful gift and that it's a win-win for both the donor and the recipient, and that uh, things that we we know now that it's safe, 30 years ago people donated kidneys uh, just purely out of altruism and love and never thought about the consequences. So, one part of the book is to educate. It's also to make people aware of what chronic renal disease is because there are 30 million people in our country right now uh, who have some form of chronic kidney disease and many of that, many of those unfortunately will go on to develop end-stage renal disease and need a kidney transplant or dialysis. But in addition, I want to educate about, um, I think I, I mentioned the transplant. I think the the third thing is that when I, when I wrote these stories of my patients, I have about uh, 15, um, uh, vignettes, which I think they read like, um, O'Henry stories because there are twists and turns and, uh, and, uh, outcomes that are uniformly excellent, um, but not easy to come by. But when I read these stories, I started to think about my patients. And the group of patients that had autoimmune disease, such as lupus or rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis, a whole host of diseases that can cause kidney failure, Um, I I noticed a trend that there was an enormous amount of stress in their lives when they were kids and adolescents. And then, for example, a disease like lupus would would strike. And uh, then I did some research and I looked uh, back at charts of my patients and I Spoke to other nephrologists and looked at other charts. And and this conferred what I had had observed all of my life, that stress, unabated stress, um, chronic stress, weakens the immune system and is very likely associated with with the onset of of an autoimmune disease like systemic lupus. So I try to educate them about about what I call the the five great epidemics in our country, And the goal is to teach about preventing, preventing kidney disease uh, in the first place. And um, the other, so the, the, the great stresses are, are, you know, the great epidemics in my mind are stress, uh, obesity, diabetes, heart, uh, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and then ultimately end-stage renal disease. They're all totally interrelated. Mm-hmm. And so that's, a, a, the second part of the book is called, And a Roadmap for Prevention. So I try to um, give uh, the people who I hope will read this book a lot of important, up to the moment, because I think the um, the illusions go right to 2018. I have um, uh, I have data from good medical journals to kind of make my point. So, I, and then the very last thing I do is I talk about the future, and I guess this is also in an attempt to give hope. And I'll give you an example of something you might find very interesting. We know that there are these uh, donor-specific antibodies that develop uh, later on, like five, six, seven years after a transplant, and they can become a real problem for the uh, for the the patient with the kidney transplant. Well, there's a st- I can't mention where it's happening yet because it's a bit of a secret. Uh, but there's a study going on now using an intravenous form of a, of a, a something called interleukin six, which mm-hmm. is a leukokine. And um, if this, um, this, is a, this is a drug which will block the interleukin-6, which may be responsible for a lot of this later in life. Like a chronic
1: rejection. I know. Chronic
0: rejection. So this, to me, is a, a, an incredibly positive thing. If it's uh, And I have one patient in that study. Oh,
1: that's wonderful. Uh, and
0: then, of course, there's the biomechanical kidney, which is being developed at San Francisco, which is starting clinical trials right now. And then the future, 3D printing of a kidney, there's a lot to be hopeful for.
1: Right. You know what? Uh, an illness is too demanding when you don't have hope. And Dr. Fisher, I really thank you for sharing your story. And before we wrap up, can you tell everybody where they can get your book? Is it available on Amazon or do you have a website you want to share?
0: I would like to. Yeah, it's uh, the website is, one word, survivingkidneydisease.com.
1: Okay, so that's that's easy to remember survivingkidneydisease.com. dot com.
0: Yeah, and it's available um, at Amazon.
1: And uh, well, it's such a wonderful accomplishment to write a book. And I thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your patient stories of courage and resilience. And uh, I look forward to, you know, catching up with you in the future and hear what you've learned from, you know, people purchasing your book and giving you feedback. And, and uh, just all in all, I think you're such an insightful man. It's been very wonderful to interview you. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Laurie, and I look forward to really uh, being a major supporter of the the Renal Support Network and the work you're doing because I think it's critical. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own healthcare provider regarding your medical condition.